the podcast where we crack the lid of the coffin on death, dying, and all the morbid morsels in between. Before we go any further, halt and take heed. These are your words of warning. I will be discussing topics of a deathly nature that may be upsetting to some as we will be talking today a about transplant surgery and uh, yes, we uh, will be getting a little bit squeamish with it. So if you're not in the right headspace to get down and dirty with the maggots today, then that's fine. I totally get it. Sometimes you'd rather dig into a jar of biscuits and a Radio 4 drama than a freshly dug grave. Now's your time to save yourself. If you're still here, I'll assume you've got your shovels at the ready because today I am talking all things transplant surgery and how it's developed through the ages with the effervescent Paul Craddock and his book, Spare Parts. Paul Craddock and his book, Spare Parts. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I am here today with the wonderful Paul Craddock. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Paul. Oh, thank you for having me, Jasper. It's lovely to be, well, actually, I've, I've been in this room all day, but it's lovely to be talking to you. <laughs> That's the thing about, you know, talking across the camera and across the many, many yeah. miles is it's never as good as actually being able to um, hang out and get a drink and... But wonders of modern technology. At least we can still. Um, I was no, going to say. You know, you said that. Yeah, without like writing letters to each other, but we do email each other like we write letters anyway. So yeah, uh, <laughs> we do both. It's versatile. We do both. <laughs> we do both. But yes, so Paul is the author of um, the fantastic uh, book "Spare Parts: An Unexpected History of Transplant Surgery." So I don't know if you want to start by giving us a, uh, a sort of a, a rundown on the book, anything that you want us to know, because I feel like you are definitely more qualified to do that than I am. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think you, you've, um, you've paid quite a lot of attention to it. <laughs> um, it's, uh, well, the spare part is a history of transplant surgery from the 16th century to the present day. And I wrote it because... I became interested in transplant surgery when I saw some pictures of a student called Jennifer Sutton. Uh, she was a um, she had a, a condition called cardiomyopathy. Mm-hmm. Basically, means the walls of her heart are thicker than it's supposed to be. Uh, it struggled the heart struggled to pump blood around the body, and the only cure is a transplant. Uh, but anyway, to cut a long story short, she donated her heart um, to. Actually, I don't know where, no, she didn't donate her heart. She gave permission for her heart to be displayed at the Welcome Collection ah. in their first public exhibition, first temporary exhibition called Heart. Mm. And there was a photographer there to take a picture of her looking at her own heart. And it just captivated me. Wow. And I thought, well, I thought a lot of things, but amongst them, I thought, well, I'm going to have to look more into transplant surgery in 
research it. And then as soon as you start to research it, you find that all of the accounts of transplant surgery start maybe around the 50s with kidney transplants. Yeah. If you're lucky, you might get something about um, vascular anastomosis or sewing blood mm. vessels together uh, starting in 1900 or blood typing around the same time. But actually, the history, if you look at primary sources and you look at some of the, of the historical, um, some, of the, some of the archives, uh, you find that transplants go back actually millennia and the yeah. earliest ones are ancient from ancient India as so skin grafts. I, I mean I was fascinated when I started reading the book because I think when you think of transplants today you do very much think of organ transplants, blood transfusions, that kind of thing but of course like you said it starts with skin grafting and, and you have the whole section on um, skin grafting for um, repairs of people's noses or you know whether due to syphilis or injury um, and then teeth as well of course which I think I mean obviously we luckily we don't transplant other people's teeth into our mouths today so you know it just didn't even luckily. occur to me <laughs> I'm very glad it not, yeah. much, not, not much makes me squeamish but that does <laughs> for me it's eyes because I, I had cataracts when I was younger so I can't <laughs> yeah <laughs> no corneal transplants for you. <laughs> no, not for me. Not yet. Not unless needed. But I'll be asleep, hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be awake for that. Um, but yeah, so that kind of that exhibition was where your interest in transplant started. Then. Yes, but you know, it's it's. I was thinking about this a few. A few months ago, actually, well, I'd finished the book already at this point, but I was thinking, why actually was I more interested in the transplants that took place before 1900? Because I am. Hmm. You know, most of the book takes place before 1900. Yeah. Um, and actually, I, I, I came to, I came to be, I was came to be convinced that a lot of what we take to be important in, in the discourse around transplant surgery, stuff around, you know. Um, the illegal organ trade and whatnot that mm. had um, precedence in the past. Like the illegal organ trade had precedence in the trade in live teeth, poor children's yeah. teeth. Yeah. Um, but but really, I think it's because I came to a kind of a professional maturity. In other words, I started working <laughs> um, <laughs> properly on things after education. Around about two thousand and six, I was just sort of. I was just sort of um, temping, um, and I was waiting to do my PhD, and then 2008 financial crash hit, mm. and that's really when I started, I started my PhD in 2009, and I, so I started to be sort of conscious of the world and the way it worked <laughs> a little bit more <laughs> around the time of, of the financial crash. So. None of my experience of the world has really um, been seen through the same lens as the stories of transplant surgery. No, yeah. hang on, that's not the right way to, to <laughs> phrase it. Um, the stories of transplant surgery that have been written have always been this incredibly, these incredibly positive, optimistic stories, you know, humankind yeah. triumphing. Yeah. Great men triumphing, actually. <laughs> 
came off earlier. And it's, it's, I think it's part of that post-war, um, almost an insistence on positive stories and of overcoming yeah. um, adversity. By the time I came to sort of start to think for myself a bit, that narrative had completely changed. Mm. In my professional adult life, there has never been a moment where you can sort of think, yeah, um, positive stories are going to fly <laughs> because <laughs> there's no money for anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. It, 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 at least for that's the way it works in my consciousness anyway. I don't know if that's a relevant reflection or something you want to. No, I think it's really interesting because I think certainly in terms of progress and, and science and scientific progress, um, I think certainly, like you were saying, in the post-war period, they very much wanted to project this on the up and up. You know, we were going to the moon, we were inventing things left, right and centre. Um, you know, you had the invention of, you know, computers and, and all of that kind of stuff as well. And I think, I mean, to me as well, there's, there's a level of, you know, we, we won the war and we were the heroes. We were the good guys. We were, we were the people sort of leading, um, change, but I feel like we we still are inventing things. It's just the discourse around it is more about, um, it's it's more it's it's a more sinister actually the stories people tell about technology today. It's all about yeah. control yeah. and surveillance <laughs> and privacy. You know, it's yeah. But it's then, not a, it's not that we can prevail kind of <laughs> attitude. It doesn't come through in the in the stories that we hear these days. I don't think. I suppose there's an element in there as well. Though is like people are well, we like to think that people are much better informed as well. I mean, because if you're looking at, you know, pre-1900s, the the rates of people who could read, people who could write, you know, like, if you're looking at sort of um, great leaps forward, things like the Industrial Revolution, like, there were very much people who were leading it and on top of that and exploiting people and very much people who were underneath that with no power to change it whatsoever. Um, And so I guess you kind of got on board with it or... Or you didn't earn anything and, you know, it didn't go very well for you. So I think we question things a lot more now, for sure. Um, but it's... Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting to think about, sort of, the way that we think about science and, and in that way. And, and But, of course, one of the really interesting things in the book is is how science has changed its mind on how we view the body because transplant surgery has been massively impacted by how we view um what makes us us and that's one of the most interesting things that continues to change and um and 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 grow and have more nuance and um is is just fascinating but i mean obviously you know you'll know from the start of the book that notion of self is very very different. I don't know if you had any particular thoughts on that at all. Well, that notion of a self is, is really is very. It's it's very. Um, I might have something actually that I do 
do have something that I can read to you that oh, sums fantastic. very broadly and crudely speaking there are two sort of notions of selfhood that are at the heart of the story of transplant surgery mm. one of them is oh well the change comes in the 18th century so when we're talking about blood transfusions in the 17th century for instance we're not really talking about a blood transfusion as we'd understand it today we're not talking about replacing lost fluids yeah we're talking about um personality or humor or soul transplants mm. so if you if you um transfuse the blood of a young dog into an older dog for instance that dog should become younger and Robert Boyle did this and experiments like it and imagined these dogs, these old dogs getting younger. <laughs> and he also he also did it where he, he transfused um, the blood of a pack of small dogs into a big dog <laughs> and imagined it was getting a bit smaller as time went by. <laughs> these are all actually written up in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society, the early ones, you know, 1664, 1666. It's amazing how, and he, he also he also he also filled a whole pack of little dogs with the blood of a big dog. All kinds of weird things, and he imagined the changes taking place, and that's mm. how you you know you have also um, Jean Baptiste Denis in France in um, Paris um, transfusing the blood of a sheep into a madman because of the calmness of the sheep. Is supposed to calm the insanity. I don't know if you've ever looked in the eyes of a sheep, but I'm not going to lie, they do not look calm. Well, no, and, and you can't get close enough to the bloody things because they, they bugger off as soon as you <laughs> approach them. So they, they are not calm no. in the slightest. No, I no, feel... They're I... flighty little buggers. <laughs> um, so, but, you, but, but anyway, you know, you have this idea of the Lamb of God as well, so this sort of purity. Mm, so if mm-hmm. you can bring that through a blood transfusion, that might your insanity and as I say in the book actually it did did seem like it worked because you can take a little bit of blood that isn't meant for your system I mean I wouldn't do it but you could do it (laughs) yeah we're not Um, recommending please (laughs) (laughs) ever since ever since um, what's he called Uh, Donald Trump suggested people drink bleach you have to be really careful now (laughs) because people might terrifying (laughs) it's it's genuinely scary (laughs) so yeah don't transfuse the blood of a lamb into your veins (laughs) right okay we got that but if you did you might be able to take a bit you'd be you'd have a fever you'd get very very tired and you'd be too tired to act bad so it looks like it works um but there was a chap george acton who he listed the animals from which you can get various different bloods mm. and the diseases they can cure. And cats, I'm sorry to say, because your beautiful little cat is Running hiding around away down there. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you if you ever had a, a case of epilepsy, you could put your lovely little cat to some use. Oh God. <laughs> Naturally. I don't know why we don't still use it today. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm sure there are 
are some some doctors <laughs> who might who, who could be persuaded to try it. Um, but that's that's that all supposedly works because you are a soul. Mm. You are an indivisible unit, and if you can somehow divide what is supposed to be indivisible, i.e. your soul, which might, for all anybody knows at that period, be circulating in your blood. If you can divide that and give it to some other being, then that has, it holds a lot of, it's, it's a terrifying prospect if you believe that you are in your blood. Mm. Yes. And that's why it's, that's why it's, 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 it was terrifying to particularly the, the French, who are, who are mainly Catholic, at this point, so it's, it's alchemy with the soul, and we were terrified by, by, by that. The British took the piss out of it <laughs> because they were Protestants that didn't quite believe <laughs> <laughs> anything like that. Uh, but you know, plays were written. Uh, a couple of plays were written about the stupid things that scientists or proto-scientists. The word scientist wasn't coined until the eighteen twenties. Mm. The stupid things that virtuosos would get up to, like trying to transfuse blood to create an army of sheepmen. <laughs> like trying to weigh air. What kind of moron tries to weigh air? You know, that, it's that attitude that kind of prevails in Britain. Yeah. But by the time you get to the 18th century, that no longer makes any sense because you have a very different idea of what is, uh, what identity is, what the self is. It's mm. no longer necessarily indivisible. It's no longer necessarily even God-given. Yeah. It can be... Um, identity starts to be seen as a composition. As something that you... You you aren't yourself by virtue of you having a, a soul that inhabits a body. But you are your body and that is all that there is. It sort of flips on its head it, in a way. It's, it's sort of... You could say that. Um, but you start to identify yourself with the things that you buy, that you own, the friends you keep, mm. uh, the things that are done to you. You know, you start to couple together your identity. Mm. People, people, well, John Locke, uh, he didn't actually use the term blank slate, but that's you know, it's his idea of having this, um, having this blank slate that you, you fill with your experiences and, and what yeah. is that, that that sort of comes into into prominence and there's a what I what I got up ages ago when I asked you to pause while I got it up was a poem by Alexander Pope yeah um, which just encapsulates that that new idea of identity so this is from I think it's it doesn't actually say the date on here but I think it's from the, the late no it must be from the early 18th century, because he died in 1744. So I think he's from the 1720s. <laughs> so I hope it's not on. from the late. He <laughs> <laughs> was born in 1688, according to this. Uh, also, he was known as the Wicked Wasp of Twickenham, which I like. Fantastic. Uh, but his poem, Celia, it's an incredibly misogynistic poem, but it wouldn't work. It wouldn't have worked 50 years before, mm. because it, the, the idea of identity... Um, being something you assemble, yeah, or disassemble in this case, which just wouldn't have been there. So it's very short. It's four. It's it's eight lines, two stanzas. I'll just read it to you. <laughs> I should put a hat on. <laughs> Special hat. So it goes: 
Celia, we know, is 65, yet Celia's face is 17. Thus winter in her breast must live, while summer in her face is seen. So it's a makeup and all that. Mm. Accoutrements and that. How cruel Celia's fate, who hence our heart's devotion cannot try. Too pretty for our reverence, too ancient for our gallant try. Presumably, it has to rhyme with try. <laughs> <laughs> so that, but but that idea of Celia, um, it's it was depicted as well at the end of the century. That oh, oh search for it. You'll see that anybody listening goes, and you can do it now, Jess, because you're um, you're in real time. Search for Celia uh, cartoon. Let me have a look. I think it's so fascinating that you can really... Oh, no, really... that doesn't come out. It's a cartoon <laughs> brings up something uh, quite different. Um... Let's see what comes up. If you... It's Celia um, Retires, I think it's called. Celia Retires. Search Celia Retires and click on images and it's the first one that comes up and it shows you basically this elderly lady ah. taking off everything ready to go to bed and she takes off her wig she takes off out her glass eye she takes out her false teeth so all of these accoutrements she associates with herself I mean she's literally composed her identity there yeah. and is decomposing it for bed um, and that is why tooth transplants became, that's why tooth transplants became such a massive industry and it was quite quite considerably you know quite considerably large um, uh, market in, in live teeth it's because people started to look after their appearance more yeah um, they wanted they had to look after their appearance to get ahead. The beauty manuals were telling them about the, the importance of the teeth, the mouth. Dentists were a new industry coming in around 1728, which, well, it introduced a menu of treatments that didn't just include pulling teeth out. <laughs> <laughs> you get your teeth cleaned, you can get them um, filed, you can get them um, filled. Yeah. and transplanted and it was all part of this larger drive to compose a more beautiful self so that's a long yeah. answer to the one about the self but they're the two main they're the two main kinds of self yeah i mean i, I think there's it, it it modulates again in the early 20th century i think when you start getting things like dialysis machines mm. where the distinction between the body's form and its function gets dissolved entirely because mm. a dialysis machine dialysis machine does the job of a kidney in fact it does a job many times more more um, efficiently than an actual kidney but it looks nothing like a kidney it can be a sausage skin <laughs> in a bath yeah that can be a, it can do the job of a kidney um, so it doesn't it doesn't have to look yeah. So, yeah. So, more recently, we've, we've this dissolution of form and function has come about. But the two main 
ideas of a self. I think it's it's, it's so interesting because I think we think of like this obsession with like self curation, and I think we're definitely at a height of it at the moment for sure. But we tend to think of it as quite a modern thing. This like that that everything you do says something about you and so you should choose all these things really well, it is carefully. A modern thing. Yeah. It is a modern thing. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a well properly speaking it's it's very much tied into the to a capitalist system. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's 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 not um I mean that that is to do with with how the 18th century brought those things together. Mm. I'm not saying whether I'm not giving any political sort of opinion there. I think you you know my politics more than I would want to talk about in public, but um, but um, yeah, yeah, it, it's it's to do with a capitalist system. But it's to do with that association of uh, or rather that that sub, um, subversion of the body to capital market forces. But I mean aesthetics are political. Yeah. Like, because people run political campaigns on aesthetics, whether it's what they look like or whether it's because they're demonising another group of people who have different aesthetics to them and the people that they're appealing to. You know, I mean, I can say it because it's my podcast, but with trans people, the issue of self um, and self-identification, wherever you fall on it, on that divide, it is an interesting topic in terms of when you're looking at what do we consider to be us. Um, Because I think in some ways it almost comes back around again in this like, we aren't just what we physically are, you know? Like there's more to us somewhere as as well, because I I think hmm, I I like that I like that that um, that reflection. But I in a way it is what it is no more than what we physically are, and it's mm. actually just an order of magnitude. Yes. If you look right up close, there is no difference. Yeah. Between any you couldn't. Mm-hmm. In fact, I made I made a film in two thousand Transplant surgery has made me 
convinced me that actually there is no essential difference between one person and another. Mm. Um, and that sounds really, what's the word? Wanky? Is that the word? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to put a little explicit <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> I, was, oh, I, was on, I was on an American podcast a while ago. Uh, and I was I was talking about um, John Aubrey, mm. the you know he did Aubrey's lives and he did the lives of a load, load of historical figures. Yeah. And the question was at the end of the podcast because he's American and they love this kind of. He said, "I because you're British, I'm gonna ask you which book you would take to a desert island." Because of course we all listen to desert island discs. Um, <laughs> so I said, "John, <laughs> John, I'll take John Aubrey's lives because it's." Long and he's a bitch. <laughs> and I said, can, and I saw her face and I said, can I say bitch? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, so, so sorry if I can't say wanky. Oh no, you absolutely can. I'll just whack the explicit button on and that's absolutely fine. <laughs> I mean, we had me and my best friend on the podcast a couple episodes ago, so that's always a, a riot in terms of swear words, so... <laughs> I think, I think it's, that's not a bad swear word, Oh, not it? even slightly, no. No. Get much worse than that. I mean, we can. <laughs> well, let's see where this takes us. <laughs> I've got to ask as well, like, there's, there's so many brilliant stories in the book were there any that didn't make it in that you sort of yes. still think about yes yeah. two big ones oh well actually one big one and one little one that i don't <laughs> think i i think this might be an exclusive definition oh reveal <laughs> Turn of the century book. <laughs> Turn of a century. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just delete all of that. Turn of a century book. Um, it, it does kind of. He does kind of evoke this archaeologist in a pith helmet thing we were talking about earlier, doesn't he? Yeah. But basically, uh, it's it's uh, an anthropological treatment of the whole of a human race, <laughs> and he, he tries to survey lots of different cultures around the world he's not he doesn't shy away from calling people primitive or savage <laughs> he kind of likes that um and his grand thesis was that society progresses from a primitive society where mm. people believe that the world operates through magic yeah um to a, a, a religious society and then the pinnacle would be a science society that organizes itself through science. So that's if you don't know what that is. But one of his stories in there was of a Polynesian tribe 
who believed that they themselves, their self, mm. uh, were were it were was in their testicles. Uh, presumably, women didn't have um, self. a self, <laughs> but they believed this because they were a waterborn uh, tribe. Yeah, and in order to feel the current of the water they would lower themselves onto the bottom of the boat and they would through their testicles <laughs> you can see why I couldn't put it in there's, there's no earthly reason why, why I, 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 I couldn't I just couldn't find a way um, yeah so <laughs> oh no I'm, I'm so interested in, in... But I thought that was in, I thought it was an interesting reflection because most people think, oh, I am here, or I am here. I'm in my yeah. heart or my brain, but they yeah. thought I'm in my testicles because that's the most important, you know, it's the most sensitive part. And they could, their most precious skill as a tribe was um, to navigate the water, and that's how we did it. Yeah. Um, so I, I loved that, and I thought I'd love to put it. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly the most, like, literal um, version of sort of dehumanizing women <laughs> to be like well you don't have well, it's this, not so... even dehumanizing it's just it's just they, they don't exist and, and <laughs> that's the, I, I don't even have words for it it's um wow yeah well it's... also you should you've got to have the context in mind haven't you this is a story that has somehow been picked oh, of up course. by, a, by yeah. a late 19th century or early 20th century turn of the 20th century <laughs> um anthropology probably second or third hand mm. and who knows who's translated it yeah. or whether they've just seen it and, and thought that's what was happening I don't yeah. know so you've got to get that context has got to be uh, kept in mind but the omission that is massive is a story that I found from 1725 I think it was and it was it was about, it was a satire about the coming of the industrial age. Mm. Um, and it was about some investors in London importing a dragon from Libya. And they couldn't get this dragon through the customs. Yes, I know this story. It's, Do you? It's so interesting. I'm trying to remember where I read it. Um... But no, go on, go on, because it, it's so interesting. It's it's brilliant. Well, it was one of the inspirations behind the um, uh, 2000 and... When was it, that? 2012, was it? The Olympics. 2012, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it was one of his... It was in, it was in a text, um, Humphrey Jennings' text, which inspired that opening ceremony. So you yeah. might have read that. Maybe, uh, maybe I have, yeah. The coming of, of a machine as told by contemporary observers or something. Pandemonium, it's called Pandemonium. Yes. And it was a, yeah, it had a collection of these different texts and that was in it. Uh, originally in Reed's Weekly Journal, so these conspirators anyway, uh, importing this dragon, decided that they, if it wouldn't pass through customs that way, <laughs> um, because it was too big, they would hire a conjurer who would concentrate its life force into its head and then he would chop the body up and then he would post different bits of the body through different ports in England all to assemble in London and they passed 
was a bit of a, a museum of uh, a museum's curiosity collection or something. Mm. So he's waved them through. And once in London, the conjurer put it together again, and he cast one last spell um, uh, to make the life force reanimate the body, and that is very close to uh, the actual theory that John Hunter came up with to explain why tooth transplants worked. <laughs> That's so amazing. So I, I wanted to, but it, it ties it into the Industrial Revolution very, very um, clearly because that dragon was actually a, a Newcomen engine. Mm. It was it was meant to provide drinking water for the capital and it, and it farted noxious gases. <laughs> um, it made all, it, it turned all everybody's curtains black because of the smoke uh, and all the Flowers around the Kew Gardens died or something. I can't remember exactly. But that was such an inspirational story for me for setting the book mainly in sort of 18th century and then going, expanding either side from there. Mm. Um, that the book was originally called Dragon in a Suitcase. I think I remember you telling me that as well, but I never understood why so that's why it was also in the acknowledgements that i think i think i can't remember but yeah dragon in a suitcase it was called and i thought that would make make a nice book cover (laughs) i mean we have a very nice book cover anyway um yeah that is a that's that is a good book cover it's a great book cover the american one the, the americans wanted to make the british one less have you seen the um oh i don't have a british hard copy here uh, but the, basically, the British hard copy is Cosmos and Damien, the two saints. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's this image. This is the American copy. Oh, wow. So it's that image, a different version of that image. Yeah. The Americans wanted to make it less gruesome, but they stuck a scalpel there, which, <laughs> which I think makes it far more gruesome. I think so. I mean, the, the, the English hardback cover is kind of dreamlike and it's more well, of I, a, a vibe than like a literal depiction yeah, of someone exactly. <laughs> with a scalpel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want, we want to make it less gruesome, so we'll put a scalpel there. Um, actually, that, that is, is interesting because the British hardcover has no red on it because mm. I it was the one thing I specified and you don't have any power as an author when you're yeah. at least not as a first time author. Yeah. You don't have any power of <laughs> what your your thing look. You can say whether you like it or not, but if you don't like it, they'll say, Well we do it. <laughs> <laughs> do it anyway. <laughs> but, <laughs> actually I assumed they would do it. I'd not tried it because I didn't like everything they, they showed to me. But I when they asked me for what really amounted to a mood board mm. uh, of pictures, um I stipulated as strongly as I felt I could get away with that I didn't want red on the cover. Mm. And that's because I didn't want it to be the kind of um, narrative you know, that would be grouped with um, Jack the Ripper, uh, yeah. <laughs> kinds of yeah. stories. Um, yeah, so that's why it's not, there's no red on it. I, well, I think that's why there's no red on it. They might have ignored <laughs> me completely. <laughs> Happy coincidence. <laughs> Uh, but no, the the paperback cover I absolutely love. I have to say the the American paperback cover sort of makes it look a bit more textbook. Um, it does, doesn't it? Well, that's that's an advanced reader copy, actually. It's not one of the paperback. 
partially destroyed as it as it should be. Well, I, I was these these I've made notes there for when I was because um, you know when when you when you finish a book you finish a book and then before you get to talk about it again a year and a half has gone 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 by <laughs> you've forgotten what you've written so I bet they're just sort of key dates for when I. I don't need them anymore because I talk about it all the time now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the key dates for when someone asks me something and asks, you can't just say, "Oh God, I can't remember." Mm. Can you? You can't. You can't say that when you've written it. I mean, yeah, you'd certainly um, come across in a <laughs> a certain light. I think if uh, you couldn't remember. <laughs> and uh, was there anything in particular that? really surprised you when you were researching it or like I don't know really grossed you out anything like that it's, it's so you know it's so hard to I've lost the ability to know what squeamish is <laughs> I think most people after they've read it as well will maybe feel a bit like that either that or they'll put it down halfway through because it's not for them <laughs> <laughs> although I hope they get to well, the end do you, I don't think that book is particularly gruesome not, not terribly, just if... Um... Every review says it's not for the faint-hearted or something trite like that. But but I, I don't think it's particularly... Um, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think it's particularly gruesome. I don't think it's... Mm. But it is. Most people... My wife says it is. Patricia says it's... I think it's the kind it's of thing gruesome. that my partner would say is, whereas I say it's, it's just fascinating. I, I well, think... <laughs> it's 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 hot. but then you, you know these the people who who did vivisection kind of that kind of thing mm. they must have very strong stomachs. <laughs> Robert Boyle he um, he was notoriously cruel to mm. the animals he experimented on, um, and he had I think I, I did write this in the book I think but he had one one sort of twinge of his conscience when he suffocated a puppy in his in his air chamber Jeez. and then thought it would be too severe too severe to suffocate another one <laughs> uh, so these people were very much you know they lived a very with a very different sensibilities they did they did but i think and i feel some of that sort of brushed i mean i wouldn't like to see a puppy suffocate i wouldn't in fact i wouldn't like to see any cruelty animals at no. all actually um, I, I wonder whether a part of it is um, that I, like whether it wraps it back into a bit of that sense of self thing in the in some ways they viewed animals quite differently and if it's within a religious context as well specifically a Christian context and you've got the idea of being shepherds and we're very much a step away from animals I don't well, no, if, if there's yeah. shepherds involved, we are the sheep in yeah. the religious context. <laughs> We're not. We are the animals. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Um, I guess, yeah, we we treat animals a little differently in a lot of ways now. Whereas, like, you're, you're reading the book and you've got a dog curled up on your lap and maybe back then your dog was a working dog and it wasn't yeah, a house yeah. dog. And, and um, you know, then you're reading it and you're looking down at the dog on your lap and you're thinking, oh, dear. <laughs> If you love dogs, it's still a very interesting book, I promise. <laughs> well, I loved. I mean, I wouldn't imagine we'd have a dog, but that's just that's simply because I like to have clean hands at all times. 
Fair enough. Fair but, enough. But, yeah, I, if, if it wasn't for that, we'd have a dog. <laughs> we'd have a cat, but we're not allowed on it because we're renting. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't think we'll be able to get dogs with our with our cat, to be honest. But <laughs> no. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. So if anybody's wondering whether to to buy spare parts or to get it from a library, even, um, and the animal cruelty is something that's stopping them. Um, no, but I do love animals. <laughs> it's those horrible people in the 17th century and 18th century. Mm. But then it's, it's it's always the the way that we have so much knowledge these days from things that we would never do now or, or would be considered <sighs> reprehensible um, or very, very illegal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But we have all this knowledge that, you know, we, we base um, so much of what we do now on and, um, you know, it came from places that we don't always like to think about, but it's important to acknowledge them. Yeah, and you have to, you have to for, uh, face up to them, don't you? Yeah. But I've, I've, to a degree. To a, yes. <laughs> I've, I've fully pulled us away from um, asking you about whether there were any particular parts that surprised you or, or grossed you out or... Oh yeah, well, it's that you were just you were just elaborating on my answer, which was uh, about my lack of squeamishness mm. or knowing what should be squeamish. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anything. I don't know if anything surprised me mm. because. Medical history is a very weird subject as it is. Um, it was very funny actually. I was I was telling Patricia, I was talking to Patricia about some of the stuff in the first chapter where where you saw you have to set out the medical. I have to set out the medical landscape of the time yeah. as briefly as possible. Um, just you know, just giving a reader who doesn't know about. 15th, 16th century medicine, a general idea of what it is. And I'm sort of saying, matter of factly, that yeah, it was a, a, a lecturer would sit at a chair and point to the body, sorry, point, read from Galen, read from a, a book of Galen, and then uh, an, an anatomist and a, a demonstrator of some kind would then point to the parts that were being discussed, but it's it didn't necessarily bear any relation to what was being and she and she, <laughs> she said, What? That's <laughs> fucked up <laughs> But because I'd done a PhD in history of medicine, I'm used to reading this stuff dry. Yeah. And sort of taking it at face value, this is what happened. Yeah. And to me it was just sort of yeah, this is just normal. The fact that for centuries people that doctors and um, medical professionals of other kinds were basing, at least legitimate ones, legitimate ones, were basing their um, diagnosis and treatment off their understanding of Greek translations of Arabic trans, oh, sorry, Latin translations of Arabic translations of the ancient Greek. Mm. That was uh, the original document was compiled from observations on animals <laughs> it's, qu it's quite unbelievable 
almost comic in in. No, no, it's not. It is comic. It's, <laughs> it's bloody hilarious. And I think that's one of that's one of the things actually. This sort of it's one of the things I wanted to bring through in the writing. Yeah. Is that it is funny actually. Yeah. And and it is ridiculous. And I'm not telling. I'm not. I'm not um, writing this as an academic, you know. Yeah. And so I don't have to sort of. I'm telling a story, so I don't have to hedge everything I say. Yeah. If I was writing an academic paper, and I have written academic papers on this kind of thing, I wouldn't lean into the ridiculousness of it. Yeah. But I, I think, I think you know, I mean, that's totally fair, and it definitely comes across in the book because, like you said, as you go through this sort of brief. Um, preface to to the history you're sort of seeing all these layers and layers of at no point no one is stopping and going hey we could just look what's going on we could just um, see for ourselves you know rather than taking this really really super dead guy's word for it I like like super dead (laughs) (laughs) but I mean there's points in the book like where you even you have people who um almost go maybe we should maybe we should just take a peek inside and and see what's going on for ourselves yeah, and then they're like nah well in the, in the 16th century <laughs> if you're a vanity who, who made uh, who brought the skin graft from being a secretive operation into into a more openly available like he stole the secret actually yes and <laughs> and made it available um because he befriended a university lecturer but um, he was vilified by the mm. establishment. Yeah. Precisely because he dared to 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 base his judgments on what people observed to be working, and not the translations of the translations of a super dead dude's death. <laughs> <laughs> to put it very yeah. academically, yes. But, that's, but that, that, I think it's I think it's actually because I'm. My PhD training is, is is in a medical cultural history of medicine. That's why I didn't get shocked by anything, yeah. because or surprised rather. Yeah. Because by the time you've you've read enough of the dry old men and their treatments of this <laughs> material, you realise that what should be surprising is just rendered into. Boredom incarnate. <laughs> so you have to try to excite it, excite people about it again. Yes, yes. Uh, I, you, you definitely do, though. In in the book, there's there's certainly never a a dull moment, and oh. it it really it, it keep, keeps you thinking the whole way through. And I think because you're really good at framing it in a way whereby um, you sort of you're you're sort of unknowingly not comparing it exactly but but putting that against the way that you know the things that we believe today and and i always feel like there's awareness of of like how much things have changed and how much things had to change to get from where you start at the beginning of the book to um you know even a hundred years after that and 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 all the way all the way up until now as well because it's an immense sort of passage of time that, that you oh, cover. Um, I'm not going to do that, that length of time again. <laughs> I I, it's, it makes it made it very difficult, actually. I rewrote yeah. that book 
three times in its entirety. Yeah. Because it's so hard to keep a track of threads over 500 years. Yeah, yeah. And 10 years of research went into it, including a PhD on 18th century transplants. Mm. And before that, I, I can't, I can't, I can't afford another ten years. I can't bring my next book out when I'm in my late forties, can I? <laughs> Speaking of, have you got anything in the works at the moment? Are you allowed to tell us about anything that you have in the works? Are you just having I'm a break? I'm allowed to tell you about it, but I don't know if I'm allowed to make any more public just yet. You can ask me that in. In two months. In two months. I think I'll be able to. I'll be able okay. to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a. Maybe we'll get you back on for a mini pod, and you can. <laughs> yeah, maybe you just just wait for two months, and I'll wear the same shirt, and I'll, <laughs> and I'll tell you, and then you can release it later. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to. We'll have to wait then. It seems. I'll, um, t- I'll, t- I'll give you a teaser though. Oh. The coffin on it's uh, the next book. Will, the it will only be over 10 to 20 Before years, probably 20 years. And, take and it will These are your be written for and dedicated to topics of a um, nature that people who are trying to, to some make the world a fairer and better place. Wow. And it will be part of what I consider to be and, uh, the Law, yes, L-O-R-E. <laughs> <laughs> of, um, so, I suppose certain causes that's fine. on I totally the political left. Sometimes okay. you'd rather dig in but it's still medical history. Yeah. That tells you wow. absolutely nothing. I'll tell you what it is when you stop recording. And yet I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> if you're still here... I mean, to be fair, after you've written something that Today, does go through so much history, I think you've earned um, a shorter time span. No, well, <laughs> historically, I mean, in terms of time spans, it would be easier. Yeah. But, because uh, I can keep track of things yeah. in 20 years, where you can't so easily in, in 500. But <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted a shorter time frame because I want to see how conflicts play out mm. within an individual person's life yeah and how those societal great societal changes um become part of a human drama yeah uh, that'll be so interesting to talk to you about those two different styles of um perspective once you've finished that one and and see sort of rather than hundreds and thousands and more of you know people's lifetimes versus just the one that's fascinating um just before we um finish up what are you reading at the moment are you reading anything good am i reading at the moment um what i'm <laughs> if i told you exactly what i've just been reading it would give away what I'm <laughs> about. Um, what am i I'm re- okay yes i'll tell you what i'm reading for pleasure at the moment okay um, uh, Burnham Wood. Oh, yeah. Um, I've forgotten who wrote bloody thing. <laughs> it's, it's um, uh, Eleanor Catton. Of course it is. Yeah, Burnham mm. Wood. And I was rec- it was recommended to me by the wonderful people at the Book Bar in Vinsbury Park, and oh, they've nice. never given me a bad recommendation. <laughs> um, and what, before that, I was reading a Georgette Heyer before that. Yeah. Do you know Georgette Heyer? I do. I've never read any of them myself. Well, her attention to 
Petri particularly is she's peerless <laughs> absolutely peerless because she collected letters from mm. that period and she she got her she's got her head around the slang do you know it's, it's just amazing to read I don't I mean if if anyone listening is um, a bookshop dweller and goes into bookshops a lot you probably will have seen them all on the shelf lined up together and I hate to say it but the covers are awful oh, the covers are horrible they're horrendous I mean certainly oh. like I I haven't ever been moved to pick one up I think certainly because um the covers are dreadful if, if, if you are involved in publishing Georgette Hayer books and you happen yeah, to be listening cover, cover designer yeah they need some refreshing. They are really, I mean, they're truly awful. I mean, yeah. I've never, they're, 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 they are amongst the worst covers I've ever seen. <laughs> they're, they're absolutely terrible in every conceivable way. But the books are amazing. Well, she, she was described, um, I don't know if someone famous described her in this way or whether I'm just, it's just Patricia who described her in this way, but um, as uh, Jane Austen on speed. See, that makes me really interested. Um, because I I'm not hugely into classics, classics. Um, but I, think, I, think, I like classics, the sound classics. of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, she had a career as a as a detective uh, fiction writer as well, didn't she? Did she? So she she had two sort of strings to her bow. She was a famous uh, mystery writer. Mm. I've not read any of her mysteries actually, no. but her Regency romances are incredible and i'm not a chick lit kind of guy <laughs> i don't care about chick lit whatever that is but this is it you wouldn't believe it to look at the covers but it's it is literature yeah i love i love um how often i speak to people who who write these kind of um for want of a better word sort of morbid books in a way um, and how they're so often reading um, romance because <laughs> I, I do the same in between reading books like this I, I go and read um, something which like the fluffier and the gayer the better um. <laughs> I don't, well my, my, my aim is to, is to combine the two we're going to have a fluffy gay morbid book oh, that. that would be Ideal, honestly, I'd I search those out. Come up with book three. <laughs> Branch out entirely into something new. <laughs> I'm thinking of black feather boa <laughs> <laughs> with red highlights. Yes, oh, it'll be iconic. They'll make an Amazon show out of it. <laughs> on that note, it has been absolutely wonderful speaking to you today, and we could absolutely go on talking all night. Um, but I'm sure the oh. listeners probably want to go and uh, get tucked up in bed with a good book. Which, if you've been listening, a good book to tuck yourself up in bed with would be Spare Parts, and try and buy from an independent bookseller if you can. Um, I know it's not possible for everyone, but try harder. Jasper, there is also an audio book which I'm Ooh. reading, and you know, I, I don't look at my reviews because I, I look at the press ones, but I'll get upset if I see a one star oh. or two stars, so I don't look. <laughs> but Patricia has looked for me. She told me that someone in someone on Goodreads has said that um, they like cozying up to my um, my voice before bed. <laughs> so 
wonderful. Never dream bedtime option. Or in which case, maybe people have said that, people say that on my TikTok about me as well. So I don't know if oh, this is actually the perfect... We should collaborate um, on an on a ASMR <laughs> piece. A, a spooky historical ASMR piece. That would be wonderful. But Paul, thank you so, so much um, for chatting you, with me today. And hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Oh, yay. Wonderful. Bye. <laughs> bye. Bye. So... There you have it. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode and that maybe you'll think a bit more deeply about what makes you, you. It's that age old tale of the ship of Theseus. If you change every plank and sail and coil of rope, is it the same ship? If we were to replace your heart, your eyes, your teeth, would you still be you? Are we simply our bodies or are we something more? Although, please, leave the experimenting to the professionals and leave all dogs out of it. If you are also a lover of the dark, the strange, and possibly of cursed literature, join me over on TikTok at Definitions, where I also chronicle and recommend all of my favourite morbid books. If you have any thoughts to share about the podcast or your own impending mortality, drop them in the comments. Reviews and ratings go a long way in helping to get this podcast out there, and I greatly appreciate the support. I want to tell you guys about all this weird stuff as much as you want to hear about it. The more you let me know you're out there listening, the more I'm inspired to delve into the depths of the internet and my local library to bring you these twisted tales. The Definitions podcast is research written and read by me, Jasper Chanter, with music provided by Zapsplat. Anyway, Chop chop, breaks over. Pick that shovel up. That grave's not gonna dig itself. Bye bye for now, listeners. Catch you on the other side.